And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, force five. Happy New Year, listeners. I hope everybody had a great holiday season and a safe New Year's Eve. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guest to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. Bruce Perky, co-host of the Cinematics Podcast, is my guest today. He's got a topic designed for schlock and awe, top five mutated animal films, and we both have some immensely fun choices on our list, so please stay tuned for that. Over the holiday, I kind of shut off my podcasting brain. I didn't ask people what me and JP Sorrow from the Laps Fan missed on our underrated holiday films list, so I'll just quickly recommend two of my own that I saw recently. The first is Christmas Bloody Christmas, which is a breezy, lower-budget horror film that mixes Terminator with Santa as a malfunctioning robot Santa goes on a murderous rampage, so that's number one. And the second one I want to recommend is Adult Swim's Yule Log, which Adult Swim kind of snuck onto the air after an episode of Rick and Morty. It starts out as a simple Yule Log scene for ambiance and eventually turns into a bizarre, surreal horror film that features possessed inanimate objects and other general insanity. Go check those out. This episode's review, though, is um, for a movie that I had no intention of ever seeing. One of the benefits of joining the Force 5 Patreon feed over at patreon.com backslash force5 is that at some point I'm going to ask you to send me a list of movies you want me to review and I'm going to pick the top one off the stack that I haven't seen before. And this week, executive producer Moose was the selector. He assigned me 1997's As Good As It Gets. Melvin Udall has only two problems in life. Melvin, wait! Shut up, kids! Human beings. How do you write women so well? I think of a man, and I take away reason and accountability. And being human. You want to dance? Well, I've been thinking about that. And? No. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. Don't you be like me. You stay just the way you are. As good as it gets. Rated PG-13. Opens December 23rd in select cities. Everywhere December 25th. As Good As It Gets always seemed like a movie that my mom would really like, a theory later proven to me when I started working at the video store and continuously rented this tape almost exclusively to middle-aged women. And my mind just kind of over time blended this about Schmidt and Something's Gotta Give together over the years because they all kind of just felt the same. Uh, second, the cast list, as talented as they may be, does nothing for me. I know it might be blasphemous to say for some, but I've never been a huge Jack Nicholson fan outside of uh, Batman, and he's been in some amazing movies, but he's not a box office draw for me. And I've also never loved Helen Hunt outside of Twister. I couldn't even name most of the countless romantic comedies I know Greg Kinnear from, so that's kind of like my relationship with this movie and this cast. Now, the film is about the intersection of the lives of three very complicated people living in New York City. We have Jack Nicholson playing Melvin, a racist, homophobic, generally unpleasant author with crippling OCD. Helen Hunt plays Carol, a burnt-out mother who spends every second outside of her job as a waitress caring for her son who has a respiratory issue. And then we have Greg Kinnear, who plays Simon Bishop, a gay artist who happens to be Melvin's neighbor. After Simon is viciously attacked in his house by Randy and Billy Loomis from Scream, a domino effect unceremoniously brings the three together. Cutting to the chase, this is a film that I liked, but I did not love it, mostly because of a story deal breaker, which I will get to here in a second. 
When it was over, I had the same feeling that I get from most P.T. Anderson movies. I thought the actors were all really great, and I thought the characters were all well-realized and complicated, but the story arcs never really gripped me like I hoped that they would. Jack Nicholson was utterly convincing as this blatant, socially inept jerk who seemingly wrote multi-layered females in his books, but if you met him, you'd wonder how. In the first scene of the film, you know everything you need to know about his character as uh, he's kind of like reprimanding this dog for peeing on the wall. And you think it's his dog and then he dumps the dog down their apartment building trash chute and it appears that it's Simon's dog. He then dresses Simon down with gay jokes, makes racist remarks in the hall, and then gives us a sample of his OCD by locking each lock five times using multiple soap bars during one hand wash and other frightfully inconvenient ticks. It was a quick and effective way to get right into the character. He was easily unlikable. Helen Hunt was also really great as this perpetually exhausted waitress at a New York diner, the only one willing to wait on Melvin. We realized shortly after that a problem like Melvin is small change compared to what she's dealing with at home. When her face lights up with really small victories in her life, like her son scoring a goal in soccer, it did seem genuine. And Greg Kinnear was actually terrific as this man who nearly loses it all. The pain in his eyes during the beginning of his journey was heartbreakingly realistic. So when Simon is beat up, his partner, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. in this really kind of uh, odd, over-the-top persona, saddles a reluctant Melvin with the task of keeping an eye on his dog, Verdell, which starts to build towards this triangle of friendship. And there are some nice moments along the way. Melvin becoming surprisingly attached to the dog is a standout thread, but it's mostly pretty safe, pretty stakeless. The thing that didn't work for me was the romantic angle between Melvin and Carol, and for a few reasons. First off, Nicholson is like 25 years older than Helen Hunt. Not a small age gap. I did, I just didn't feel any real spark between them, so the angle almost seemed like she felt obligated to initiate a romantic gesture because of the kindness he showed her son. It also felt like they were just completely wrong for each other, a relationship that, when the camera stopped rolling, I couldn't see lasting for more than six weeks tops. And I'm not sure if the writers were trying to tell us that the real cure for OCD is love, but that's kind of how it felt. I know the pills were involved, but it felt like they were saying that love is the thing that conquers all. I think the film would have been a heck of a lot stronger if the crux of the plot was watching these three people become the unlikeliest of friends, because with Simon in the mix, it could have really easily been done. His relationships with both Melvin and Carol were more interesting than that of the romantic leads, in my opinion. The film was a smash hit in 1997, becoming Jack Nicholson's second highest grossing film of his career behind Batman. It raked in $148 million at the box office and was a film with legs. It was never higher than number three, opening the same week as Titanic and the awful James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies, but it hung around in theaters for a long time. It also had a field day at the Oscars, garnering seven nominations with all three leads nominated and saw Nicholson and Hunt take home gold. It was even nominated for Best Picture alongside Full Monty, L.A. Confidential, Goodwill Hunting, and the winner that nobody was going to beat that year, Titanic. Roger Ebert gave the film three stars and agreed with me about the parts being greater than the sum, although he put it much more eloquently. He wrote, quote, This film creates memorable people but is not quite willing to follow them down unconventional paths. It's almost painful watching the screenplay stretch and contort these characters to fit them somehow into a conventional formula. They've dragged toward the happy ending, screaming and kicking all the way. If the movie had been either more or less ambitious, it might have been more successful. Less ambitious, and it would have had a sitcom crowd pleaser in which a grumpy Scrooge allows his heart to melt. More ambitious, and it would have touched on the underlying irony of this lonely man's bitter life. But as good as it gets is a compromise, a film that forces a smile onto material that doesn't wear one easily. End quote. I guess Ebert was Ebert for a reason.
There is a lot to like here. Like I said, the characters are really fleshed out, well acted, and most of the dialogue is really well written. You'll probably find yourself laughing at the outlandish insults Melvin spends most of his days spouting off at people. You won't be laughing because they're playful or actually funny. You'll be laughing out of discomfort because they're so abrasive and clearly meant to cut deep. But you'll also probably assume that, even though things seem happily ever after as they walk into a bakery at four in the morning, he verbally assaulted the person making his bagel because Melvin never appears to change. He just seems to get better at giving compliments. In addition to the VHS copies I used to rent to enthusiastic middle-aged women, As Good As It Gets has been on disc a few times. The 1998 release on DVD, released the same day as the VHS tape, featured a commentary with all three main actors, director James L. Brooks, producer Lawrence Mark, composer Hans Zimmer, and editor Richard Marks. When Twilight Time released the Blu-ray in 2012, they did not port over the commentary, unfortunately, included the trailer as the only extra, and limited the release to 3,000 copies. Most recently, finally, the film has been given a 4K release, but unfortunately, it's only available as part of the Columbia Classics Volume 3 4K box set. Thankfully, the audio commentary has returned for this release, and they've also added deleted scenes, the original ending, behind-the-scenes footage, a featurette, and an electronic press kit thing. Assigning me movies isn't the only benefit of becoming a Patreon listener. You get exclusive shows. Next week's exclusive show is five films you didn't know had made-for-TV movie sequels. You get exclusive draft shows, extra reviews, and more. In December, we had the Christian Bale draft, exclusive reviews for Invisible Maniac from 1990, Freeway from 1996, the Sonny Chiba film Yakuzable from 1972, and on Christmas Eve, a bonus show about the Ralphie Parker cinematic universe. So please join in the fun over at patreon.com backslash force five. Speaking of as good as it gets, let's talk about today's sponsor. It's after New Year's. You've probably already given up on your New Year's resolution. So it's time to get your eat and drink on at today's sponsor, the Snuggly Duckling Tavern in Corona. Founded in 2010, this pub focuses on exceptional, honest beer making. That's the hook. Right now, their ever-changing tap list includes the Dingle Hoppy, double IPA, Snow White and the Seven Ciders, Looking Glass Lager, Street Rat Stout, and my personal favorite, named after me, the Klebok, which comes in a special collectible Force 5 goblet. Tell them I sent you for a free song at the piano that will nudge you to follow your dreams. That's the Snuggly Duckling Tavern in Corona. Work hard, beer harder. Now let's get to Bruce Perky and some mutated animal films. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Today I am joined by fellow cinematic. That how you say it? Cinematic. Bruce Perky. <laughs> you can find Bruce yes. talking movies on the Cinematics podcast as well as the Cinematics Facebook page that I plug each and every episode. And you've probably heard Bruce in the very first Force 5 live draft beating Eric Holmes with a superior list of Kurt Russell films. Bruce Perky, <laughs> how are you today, my friend? <laughs> I am doing very well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. This is like a rare afternoon recording session for me. So I feel like I'm uh, way more bright-eyed and bushy-tailed than I normally <laughs> am when I'm recording at like 7 p.m. Well, thank you for accommodating my uh, time schedule here. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for uh, accommodating my request for help because we had a guest drop out and uh, I was running low on... on uh, like on time here and you stepped in with a really interesting really great topic that we had talked about before and we'll get to that in a second but i want to talk about cinematics first uh people have heard me talk about cinematics 
they've heard Greg Sersavasti on here. They've heard you. They've heard Eric. Uh, but for those who maybe aren't familiar with the podcast, what can people look forward to when they switch over after listening to us here? Well, Cinematics, we do uh, pretty much every single week. We will cover usually two to three um, brand new movies that are about to come out in the theater. Generally, uh, they're going to be more indie releases, although every so often we get some uh, major releases or something that's going on one of the major streaming platforms. And then uh, we usually have a few recommendations that are aside from that that may be new, may be older. And then every week uh, I do a little segment called uh, What's in the Box, obviously inspired by Seven. And uh, I literally have a box, which if you can hear it, I'll shake next to the microphone here. Uh, I have a little box that I just add either movies that uh, I've never seen before that I've just never get around to and I want to force myself to watch them at some point or I get submissions from people of movies that they think are underappreciated or are not talked about. So every week I'll pick one of those out of the box and the next week I will do a review on it either alone or with one of my uh, cohorts on cinematics. And before I think when when we had you on the show, it was no the the podcast was Find Your Film, and you have since merged with Cinematics, so it's just one Cinematics uh, yes. feed now. Cool. So so basically, the weekly Cinematics show is essentially very similar to what Find Your Film was, and then on that feed with uh, Cinematics, we also do. Uh, a lot of interviews, uh, mostly uh, Eric and Greg do those, although I pop into those once in a while. And then uh, sometimes we'll have deep dives or spoiler discussions and, and a variety of other things. And then once a month, Anderson, who also is kind of the, he's one of the founders of Cinematics, but he doesn't come on quite as much. He will get with Greg once a month and they pick a year and they each pick a movie from that year uh, to discuss in depth. Yeah, it's a really good feed, and I've learned about a ton of movies. Just estimating, how many new movies do you think you've seen in 2022? Oh, boy. I, you know, I haven't actually looked to see. I do keep everything on Letterboxd. Uh, I know I've watched, at this point, I think over 360 movies this year, but they aren't all new. So I would say, just uh, just off the top of my head, at least probably 150 new movies this year, if we average about three a week, so probably about 150. Jeez. And as this... As this airs, we are in the new year, 2023. What are some of the favorite films that you saw in 2022? Be that made in 2022 or just discoveries that you found in 2022? Oh, wow. Discoveries. Uh, I won't get into any discoveries because I, I would just lose my mind trying to think of them all. I guess <laughs> something relatively recently that I discovered, which I'd heard about forever, was Ace in the Hole. Uh, that was something Eric loved uh, and I had never got around to watching. And I watched that Kirk Douglas movie. That movie is amazing. Uh, as far as movies from last year, I, I did a little top 31 of the year. And I guess I'll just pick four or five that maybe didn't get as much play. Um, Holy Spider was an excellent movie. Um, and I want to say it's out of Scandinavia, but takes place in Iran. It's really, really good. Uh, Sagasu, otherwise known as Missing, that's a Japanese movie. We have lots of international stuff, of course. It just kind of flows in there. Uh, two or three more. Let's see. What do, we, what do I want to pick some things that aren't talked about as much? Uh, Gagarin, G-A-G-A-R-I-N-E. It's the name of the um, Soviet astronaut, but it's also the name of this housing um, kind of a project that was being destroyed and demolished in Paris. And it's a whole story around that. And then last but not least, I will mention The Long Walk, which is out of Laos. Uh, and that was directed by, um, oh my gosh, I forgot her name all of a sudden. Um, it's a great movie. It's a great uh, time travel, serial killer, time loop, 
horror movie out of Laos. Yeah, that one uh, really interested me when I heard you guys talking about it. I've been looking forward to seeing that ever since. Maddie Doe. I would be ba- bad if I forgot her name. Maddie Doe. She's an amazing director. She sat with us and day drank. Well, it was like almost midnight for her. <laughs> she was in Laos and she day drank with us. It was like <laughs> 10 in the morning here or something uh, for like three hours, just talking to us about everything, including her movie. And she did not have to do that. And she did. And she was pretty amazing. That's awesome. Now, um, I'm bad at transitions, so let's talk about mutated animals. <laughs> mutated animals? What brought you to that, sir? <laughs> mutated animals. We talked about you being on the show a long time ago, and this was the very first topic that you came to me with. We discussed a couple of other topics, went back to mutated animal films. What's your motivation for this topic? Why was this your first pick? Well, I, I mean, we talk a lot about a lot of you know, art house movies and international movies and all these kind of prestige kind of movies. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, bread and butter along with, you know, just major releases, but I don't get to talk much about schlock or sci-fi or all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, when I was a kid, one of the big things that I just loved was these old, you know, 50s sci-fi movies and, you know, mad scientist movies and monster movies and creature features and all that kind of stuff that now just gets kind of you know, sidelined, like you said, into schlock or into, you know, just kind of, you know, popcorn, but B or D level popcorn, you know, all the yeah. stuff that would end up on Mystery Science Theater 3000, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so things that maybe wouldn't get great ratings, but I still love them and have a lot of love in my heart for them. So uh, I thought this, and you had mentioned to me that the person, or originally you had, had, had I guess, slotted this to be about uh, animals that attack or something like that. And I said, well, let's just morph that. Let's mutate that slightly <laughs> into <laughs> mutant animals or mutant animal attack movies. And that's kind of what brought me to that. So it's a kind of that dual love of, you know, old creature feature kind of stuff. Although these are not all old, but they're mostly older. And um, that combined with animal attacks. And there you go. That's what you get. Well, I'm excited. I obviously, uh, I am a big fan of schlock and the B movie. And uh, those non-prestige picks, these are my bread and butter. So I was excited that you chose this topic. And uh, I've got a couple like really heavy topics coming up in January and February. And this is kind of like a reprieve from watching and re- reviewing some of those <laughs> yeah, movies. Like best Holocaust movies or something. It's like, oh gosh. <laughs> you know? We've got some, yeah, some pretty serious, more heavy topics. So this is a, a good way to get a, a little bit of a breather before I delve more into those films. Did you have any requirements for a film to make your list? Um, well, you were, kind like, of. Stuff down? Yeah, I, I the thing I had is I I didn't want him to be uh, like a cryptid or an unnatural, you know, legendary monster or something like that. They had to be an actual a version of an actual creature, like an actual living creature on Earth. So it couldn't be like a dinosaur or you know Godzilla or something, right? That would be kind of an obvious example of something that wouldn't fit. Um, and then in my case, I gave myself this, the, the structure also that it couldn't be, um, it couldn't be like a, a mutated human animal. Okay. So I kind of narrowed that out a little, although there might be a slight, mm, I I might hedge that a little bit here and there, but, um, overall I kind of stuck with that. And at one point I was going to make them all one kind of creature. I could have done all five as one kind of creature, but I, I, I only have two of that creature in my list. I'll just leave it at that. Hmm. Can I guess that it would be a spider? You could guess that if you want to. 
<laughs> you might I, be uh, right. You might be wrong. You won't know until the list gets done. That's true. I actually don't have any spiders on my list, so that'll be interesting. I really, I had very similar rules to you. I needed movies with uh, creatures that started out as animals and mutated uh, from an animal. So, which which rules out a really great movie, but it just didn't fit my criteria. Uh, like you, I didn't want didn't want it to be a human that morphed into something else. It had to be an animal that mutated right. originally, and uh, and and a real animal as well. So just like you, no dinosaurs, no Godzillas on my list here. And then I did leave off a couple films that made top five lists recently. So I'll get to those when we get to our uh, honorable mentions. Sounds good. All right, Bruce Berkey from Cinematics. You ready to get into our lists? I am ready. Let's do this. Let's do it. Why don't you uh, kick us off here at number five? What's your number five on top five mutated animal films? All right, number five. Oh, before I say that, how many do you think we're going to match on? Ooh, crossover. Let's see. Um, well, I don't have any spiders on my list, so that leaves like th- <laughs> possibly <laughs> two or three selections. I'm going to say one. I'll say one. I'm going to guess two. Okay. 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 Number five is from 1975. Here is the tagline. They look like rocks, possess high intelligence, have no eyes, and eat ashes. They travel in your car exhaust. They make fire. They kill. And that would be from 1975, a movie directed by Gino Swark. I don't know if I'm saying that name right. Bug is the name. Bug is the movie. It was a day like any other. The air hung heavy with the heat. Then it happened. A crack in the land that reached to the very bowels of the earth itself, spitting out the fires of hell. And the gleaming black bug that had no eyes and looked like a rock. It traveled in the exhaust pipes of cars, making fire, killing, and infesting the land with a burning terror. Wherever you turned, the bug was waiting, ready to grasp you in its soul-chilling grip of terror, to push you beyond human endurance and leave you in a state of blood-boiling fear that will drag you to the brink of your sanity. Direct, uh, it was a screenplay by William Castle. It's one of the last, if not the last, screenplays he ever did. And it stars Bradford Dillman. Have you ever heard of this? I have not heard of this. I, I'm looking it up right now and looking at the poster, and just the poster's got me sold. <laughs> yeah, I figure if you if you drop any uh, trailers in this episode, you're going to have some great trailers, too. Uh, basically, it starts out, I think if I remember correctly, this movie starts out in a church, like a little, like a... Uh, like a desert church, but very fire and brimstone type of church, uh, ironically speaking. And uh, there's like an earthquake. It occurs during the the actual sermon and, you know, the, the pews are rolling. And then shortly afterwards, uh, you see uh, giant cockroaches coming out of a crack in the earth. And the cock, one of the cockroaches gets into the exhaust of this truck, these two country people. And uh, these cockroaches have a special mutation they can create fire and uh, <laughs> the cockroach blows up the truck. <laughs> nice. And then there, here's where uh, Bradford Dillman comes in. He's a scientist 
uh, and he's trying to figure out what's going on, uh, as they tend to do in these movies. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's several scenes in his house, which just happens to be the uh, same set used in the Brady Bunch when the Brady Bunch was not when the Brady Bunch was not a hit. Uh, so they just just doubled up and used the kitchen for this movie and uh, now and since then this has become kind of the uh, claim for fame for this movie is that other than <laughs> william castle's last script this has uh the brady bunch kitchen prominently uh featured throughout the movie uh this movie is is quite odd um it's kind of a combination mad scientist going mad as the movie goes on and becoming obsessed with these um these bugs these cockroaches giant cockroaches and studying them and trying to figure out what's going on and they start to adapt to the situation as well in ways that's quite fun uh and there's some pretty great kills in this as well Uh, i think if i remember correctly the poster might show like a woman with a a telephone like receiver to her and it's like on fire and that definitely happens uh there's lots of (laughs) lots of burning (laughs) burning cockroaches in this movie so there you go that's what i got bug Bug. I got to check this out. The only bug I've ever heard of uh, was the Ashley Judd movie. I think Ashley Judd from like 2006. Yes. I have not heard of this one. So yeah, I'm that's excited. William Friedkin, right? William Friedkin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, that's another thing about my list. I think, and I might be wrong, I think almost everything on my list, there's other more famous movies with the same name almost. Uh, so you have to, you have to uh, look at the year to get the right movie. All right, Bug from, what did you say, 75? Yes. All right, cool. Well, we're starting off with a new one to me. I'm excited about that. Uh, my number five, I'm sure that you've probably seen this movie or heard of this movie. It is from 1987. The film is called Uninvited. They say cats have nine lives. You have only one. A poisonous cat. Now, how's that possible? You're gonna be richer than your wildest dreams! You familiar with uh, Uninvited? <laughs> the Cat? By Graydon Clark? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am aware. This is written and directed by Graydon Clark, who did Joysticks, which was like the video game version of Porky's um, Dance Macabre with um, Robert Englund, and Final Justice with Joe Don Baker. So he's he's uh, like dabbles in different genres, and like you mentioned, the, the mutated animal in this film is a cat who has been genetically altered at a genetic research facility. But it's about a luxury yacht. So in the very beginning of this film, the cat <laughs> escapes from this facility and kills a bunch of people on the way, uh, including these two yokels who are in this truck, and it just like smashes through the back window and kills them, and it finds its way to the docks where it boards this luxury yacht that's on its way to the Cayman Islands. And on the boat, you've got a couple of white-collar criminals who are fleeing criminal prosecution, the crew, obviously, and then a couple of naive spring breakers who just find themselves at the dock, and they're like, hey, can we go on this boat? And they're like, sure, why not? (laughs) Yep. It's, you know, just to get more bodies on the boat. And then uh, the, the cat starts killing people one by one. And it's kind of an interesting watch because... The cat, if they just like left the cat alone, it probably wouldn't do anything to them. But everybody who dies, it's kind of their own fault that they've pushed this cat to the point where it's going to kill them. The the charm in this film is the low budget nature, especially in the creature and the kills. It's a little like an orange tabby cat 
which if you look at the cover of the Blu-ray, or, or it's a black cat on the cover, but it's actually an orange cat in the film. And it mutates. The budget's so low that sometimes it mutates one way and then sometimes it mutates another way. Sometimes it mutates where like the cat's mouth opens and this other kind of like lion looking creature comes out of its mouth. And then at other times it just is this lion beast. Like it just morphs into this lion beast. It's uh, there's there's little rhyme or reason <laughs> to the look of the beast. Um, <laughs> the kills, though. Really fun when the cat starts slashing necks, biting fingers off. Oh, and we also find out at one point that it's poisonous. So, uh, like, I mean, if it come bites on, you, why not? Yeah, I know. If it bites you and doesn't kill you, then you're gonna uh, basically like morph into a bloody mess. And so, like, one guy's fingers get bit off, and he decides he's gonna just jump overboard. Um, <laughs> like you do, really? It, yeah, <laughs> I can't really, swim anymore. Really I must go. I'm out of he's, here. He's like, yeah, you know what? There's no cure for this. I'm on a yacht. I'm just gonna drown instead of turning into a bloody mess. And bonus points for any film that keeps obvious line flubs in. Um, there are a couple of moments in here <laughs> where lines are like the actor forgets the line halfway through and just restarts, and they just keep it in. Um, there's also like toy boats so you see the yacht from afar and it's clearly just a boat in a bathtub that they were filming and then uh, finally like there's a stinger at the end where in in a lot of these films a lot of uh, mutated animal films where you know you'll see the eggs at the end so there's a possibility for a sequel Um, in this one you see the cat that has made it to shore but it is a different cat altogether it's a black cat and this kid picks up this black cat on the beach and we're supposed to just buy it that it's the same cat that we have seen the whole movie. It's just a different looking cat. Really entertaining movie. Um, a great one to watch with friends. And it definitely fits that B movie mold that I really love. Yeah, I, I remember seeing this was quite a while ago. I didn't remember too much about it. But I did remember, I remember the boat part, like the, the really bad model. And I remembered the, I, I couldn't remember what it was, but I remembered uh, the creature crawling out of the mouth of the other creature. And I couldn't remember how that worked exactly, but it sounds like it doesn't work all the time, but uh. (laughs) (laughs) no, no, it's, it's very selective based on probably what they could do at the time with the budget that they had. Yes. I do remember that for sure. That's great. Yeah. That's my number five uninvited from 1987. Number four here. I got taglines for all these just because I thought taglines are fun. The creeping, crawling, dirty death. I mean, that could be just about anything, right? So (laughs) this is uh, from 1979, uh, probably almost the lowest point for John Frankenheimer. Uh, That is 1979's Prophecy. It is not the offspring of witchcraft or Satan. It was created by man. It will grow to be 15 feet tall. will have huge eyes, webbed hands, hooked claws. It will walk upright. And it will mindlessly, mercilessly kill every living thing it meets. Prophecy. Now, I don't know if you've seen this movie. You know what? I haven't. I have the full five film prophecy Blu-ray set and I haven't yet watched them. 
I think you're thinking of a different movie. I think you're thinking of The Prophecy. So <laughs> Christopher The Walken, Prophecy yeah. with Christopher Walken. This is Prophecy from 1979. This is a totally different different thing. Um, so this is a, a starring vehicle or sem- a co-starring vehicle of Talia Shire um, from your recently watched Rocky fame, of course. Uh, Robert Foxworth as a, in all of his late 70s uh, white dude, Afro bearded you know, self. He looks a lot like he'd be someone in, uh, I don't know, ELO or something. And then Armand DeSante playing a Native American. And that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say there's a lot of Native American stuff in here that is not treated very sensitively, uh, unfortunately. So what's the basic concept of prophecy? Well, the movie starts out with a bunch of uh, people at night uh, running through the forest. You find out that these are are logging company people. uh, And they're they're out there with their like hunting dogs. I don't know why they have hunting dogs and uh, they're chasing something and uh, they go flying off a cliff and they get attacked by something and they all end up dead at the bottom of this ravine, like all smashed on the rocks, uh, smash cut to, uh, Robert Foxworth. And he's, uh, working in tenements as a, a doctor for, for, uh, you know, really, uh, poor people. Uh, kind of being the the white savior as he is in this whole movie pretty much uh, <laughs> and uh, Talia Shire is his girlfriend who is secretly pregnant and he doesn't know that but he would love her to have an abortion he that makes that very clear so he's a really great guy he's really sensitive <laughs> I know right <laughs> it is like a, a plot peach. point yeah so anyway he gets called off to the uh, to Maine because he needs to do an EPA report uh, to find out what's going on in the woods next to this uh, paper mill. Uh, there's Native Americans that are there and they're fighting the logging company and the paper mill because it's, you know, destroying their land. And when he gets there, uh, when they both get there, she comes out there with him. Uh, she's a cellist in the, or- in the, you know, like symphony. And they, she brings her cello with her to the, <laughs> to the woods. That's, that's pretty do. great. Yeah, of course. Anyway, they get out there, immediately meet the, the Native protesters uh, and they are brought to this special little pond where they are shown a giant polywog, like the size of, I don't know, a salmon. Uh, so they immediately find out like, ooh, something's not right here. And the, 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 the main the, you know, elder there is telling them how this is a special area where everything grows really, really big. Um, and that, you know, it's magical. But of course, <laughs> it might also be the mercury that's going into the water that could be causing part of the problem. Uh, oh, I didn't mention... Uh, you'll like this. Richard Dysart is in here as one of the logging guys, uh, one of the logging execs. So you got a little thing crossover here. Um, so anyway, as it goes, the, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole plot, but we do get a uh, mutant angry uh, polywog, as I said, giant fish. You get uh, other mutated uh, baby animals. You get uh, attacked by a raccoon. Uh, you do, of course, find out that Talia Shire is pregnant and she's been eating fish that might have mercury in them. So, of course, there's worries that she's going to have a mutant as well. I don't know if she does or doesn't. And, of course, the main thing in this is the giant mutant bear, uh, which is at, <laughs> which is sometimes played by the, uh, and I didn't write down the actor's name, but sometimes played by the actor who ended up playing in The Predator and a bunch of other, um, you know, monsters in the 80s. So this is his first role as a monster, as this giant kind of mutant, uh, melty-looking bear that attacks everybody. Uh, but it, sometimes it's played by a small person, so they can have small sets around him and uh, you know make it look <laughs> like it's big. Oh man! Uh, this movie is pretty terrible. It's pretty schlocky, and it's I have 
fun with this at every turn. I'm 99% sure this was a Mystery Science Theater episode. Uh, this was something I saw a lot in my youth. And uh, other than I think the Do- Island of Dr. Moreau, this might be Frankenheimer's lowest point. But I would disagree. I would not say it's his lowest point. I mean, I got to watch it just because there's a mutant bear. And Frankenheimer, <laughs> I mean, he's a talented director. But if you look at his filmography, he's got a lot more misses than he has hits. That's for sure. True. And this was this was like right as they were trying to capitalize. Like, this is like post, you know, post Jaws. So they were trying to come up with all these attack, you know, kind of movies. I believe this came out like very close to Alien. So, of course, Alien destroyed it. Oh, yes. I mean, 79, he would have been probably coming off of like French Connection 2 and then decided to do this. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to watching this. Is it better? I, I've always said Frankenheimer's worst was uh, Reindeer Games. <laughs> is this uh, same, I mean, same area? Reindeer Games is terrible, too, but it's kind of watchable as well, right? I mean, oh, yeah, super fun. <laughs> yeah uh, this is um hmm boy that's a hard that's a hard call they're so different they're i would say they're equally bad in in different ways i would say that um reindeer games has better bad dialogue and plot points whereas this has just got a little more straight up shot oh, i didn't even mention there's a great kill okay I'm not going to, this is spoiling it. Oh, whatever. You can't spoil it. It's great to watch. There's a great kill. <laughs> There's a point. Um, I'd say it's like a, right before things really get monstery in this movie, which does take a while. It's the seventies. Um, there's this family you meet early on when they get there that's just going out to camp in the woods. So they'll keep going back to this family that are doing nothing but camping in the woods. So they're obviously just to be killed. And they, they wake up in the night and the kid, <laughs> the kid is in his down um, sleeping bag. And I wonder if this might have been inspired uh, uh, Friday the 13th later because he gets up, you know, he has it like, you know, how you can cinch it up around your face. So it cinch up around his face and he gets up on his feet. So he looks like a mummy almost like he's in his, he's in his sleeping bag and you don't see the monster bear, hardly just a flash of it. But then you do see the shot of the, the, the sleeping bag rocketing across the campsite and smashing into a rock. <laughs> okay. Bloating and down. It, that alone is worth the price of the mission. I'm sold. I'm sold. This is prophecy from uh, 1979, not the Christopher Walken version. <laughs> no, it would have been better with Christopher Walken, but nope, he wasn't there. He could have played the bear, I suppose. Okay, I got. I got to check this out. This is going on my list. My number four could have used the same tagline as yours. What was the tagline for prophecy here? Oh yeah, what was it? Let's see. Uh, it was a the creeping, crawling, dirty death. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <mine could laughs> That's a terrible that. tagline. <laughs> <laughs> and mine has uh, almost the exact same qualities as it appears prophecy does. This is uh, nineteen, a film from nineteen eighty eight called Slugs. It all began in a peaceful community, a place that had never known evil until now. But 20 years ago, in the stillness beneath these waters, something happened. And now, its deadly spawn has been released. Coming up from the depths, out into the light. Slugs. First, they got into the water system. Now, they'll get into your system. Oh my god! 
Oh, yeah, it's Lux. <laughs> so a few years ago, I saw the 1982 film Pieces, and it turned out to be like one of the most insane, fun films I'd ever seen, directed by Juan Piquera Simone. And I just had to see something else he directed, and the easiest of his films to see was 1988 Slugs. And this is obviously a, a mutation for black slugs who have been changed by toxic sludge, as a lot of these uh, 70s and 80s films, like the, the catalyst for everything is toxic sludge. So it's about a uh, rural town, and uh, they're getting, you know, ma- mass murder by these killer slugs, and it's up to the local health inspector, of course, to stop them. And uh, people are dying gruesomely. And this guy, Mike Brady, speaking of the Brady Bunch, this dude named Mike Brady (laughs) has a possible solution. But his theory of killer slugs is, of course, ridiculed by the authorities. And once the body count begins to rise, this slug expert begins investigating the town. And it appears as though Brady's theory might be right. The best thing about slugs is that it has the exact same energy as pieces in that it is wild, makes very little sense from scene to scene. It feels like almost like montages sometimes just tossed together. It is filled with incredible practical gore, but this time it has that small town Midwestern B-movie creature feature vibe. All the characters are really goofy and have a lot of personality. It's um, it, it was one of those like staples of the 70s and 80s to have the, the character that wears a football jersey, but it's like mm-hmm. there's no team on it. Right. It's just like a number, no name on the back, like a white jersey with green numbers. I don't know why that was just a thing, um, but I always dig it when a character's wearing that. Highlights include a man chopping off his own hand because there's a slug trapped in his gardening glove. And he's like, like he puts this gardening glove on. And he's like, something's biting my finger. And then he just <laughs> decides to chop his hand off with an axe instead of like really trying to peel the glove off. Um, we've got a man's head basically exploding with uh, slugs and worms flying out which is a fun scene and this has one of the most insane sex scenes you'll ever see where this couple is having sex and there are slugs that have and i don't know how this happened because slugs move so slowly but by the time they're done having sex the room is just covered in black slugs um arrow put a great blu-ray out of this film so if you want to check out slugs and I would also recommend checking out Pieces, his other film that is just oh boy, bizarre yeah, madness. Yeah, um, go check out the Arrow Blu-ray because uh, it is very well done. I'm guessing that you've uh, seen, it sounds like you've seen Slugs. I feel like I've seen Slugs, but I don't remember hardly anything about it. So it might have been one of those things where it was on a late night, you know, creature feature or something. And I was half out of it when I saw it, but I feel like I've seen it, but I can't guarantee it. I, if I saw it now, it would be like seeing it again. One of the great advantages of being older, like myself, <laughs> you get to rewatch <laughs> movies and you see them all over again. I have a really short memory when it comes to movie plot points too. Like I'll watch a movie and then five years later, I forget how it ends. So it's always really fun to rewatch stuff. But uh, this one I did rewatch for this episode. And I tell you what, I will be checking my salads when I'm making my salads way more. <laughs> than I ever did in the past. <laughs> Sounds like that'd be a good uh, double feature with uh, Night of the Creeps. Yeah, yeah, perfect one. Yeah, I guess that's uh, Slugs as well. So this is, uh, yeah, Slugs from 1988. That's my number, what is that, four? Yes, that's your number yeah. four. Number three. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> I got it too. <laughs> Hang on. All right, tagline. 
Uh, ravenous invaders controlled by terror out of space commanded to annihilate the world. Now that, that's a tagline for you, right? Um, this is directed by Saul Bass, if you know who Saul Bass is. He's the title creator for probably almost every great 60s title sequence you've ever seen, most notably Psycho and Vertigo and a bunch of uh, Hitchcock stuff. Anyway, he directed this movie in 1974. It's called Phase Four. In the next few moments, we will try to give you an impression of a new kind of film experience. If your curiosity is aroused, you are ready for Phase Four. Sending back my message. What does it mean? This is no message. If there's an intelligence there, I want it to know there's an intelligence here. I believe that they'll move rather quickly into desert areas, taking over the countryside first, then laying siege to towns and cities. We have only chance uh this is this is the 2001 of ant movies if you've never seen phase four uh and it is quite an odd movie so what is phase four so it starts out with basically um you're out in the middle of the desert once again a lot of these seem to be in the desert which i think almost all of mine are in the desert at some point pardon me so anyway, you're out in the desert and um, pretty rural area. And there's these kind of, um, you know how like in 2001, you have the obelisk. These are almost like giant, like if you had um, anthills, but they were geometrically shaped and forming, um, you know, like these large columns that actually would make sound when the wind blows through them. That's what they're finding. And they're seeing that there's signs of intelligence from the ants in the area. And to the point that they have possibly teamed up to kill some people nearby there and they're not sure about that but enough that they want to study it so somehow our heroes which are scientists of course almost similar to andromeda strain our heroes uh are able to set up this uh research facility somehow right in the desert near where these ants may be uh building these shaped you know figures out in the desert uh and they build this uh the humans build this round kind of a geodesic half dome uh, research facility and and it has these uh long i don't want to say like kind of like spires that go out from the side of it so it can spray different materials out from the uh facility if it needs to protect itself from the ants and it goes and they go forth trying to study these ants that kind of is the basic setup of this movie the hard thing to describe about this movie is it is full of really 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 great um microscopic photography of actual ants to such a degree that it's kind of obsessive which i kind of love about this where you'll have these shots where uh you'll be right down at the ants level and uh you'll be seeing these giant human faces as they're trying to study them and stuff and then it's kind of becomes believe it or not a uh ant and mouse game or whatever you want to call it (laughs) (laughs) between super intelligent ants and these scientists that are trying to first study them and second try to eradicate them 
But eradicating these ants isn't as simple as it would seem because the ants are as smart, if not smarter, than the scientists who are studying them. Um, there's a bunch of weird highlights in this movie. I won't go through all of them. It's neat to see all these different kind of shapes they build, how they actually build anthills in shapes that they can use, they can weaponize, which is really kind of cool. And also, one of my favorite things in this is the point where a bunch of ants do get killed. Not all of them, but a bunch of ants get killed. And you have essentially a microscopic ant funeral and the way it's filmed, the way it's filmed and the way it's um, shot and the music and everything about it is one of my favorite sequences in a schlocky sci-fi movie I've ever seen. It's it's quite stunning. The movie doesn't quite rise to that at all points, but even that alone is, is pretty great. And then as it goes further towards the end, it becomes a little more uh, psychedelic as you tend to in these uh, early mid 70s movies, especially post 2001. Uh, but uh, phase four is a really interesting sci-fi oddity if you've never heard of it or encountered it before this is one that i have not seen i know of it um i don't know if i've ever discussed my weird phobia of large groups of ants on this show before (laughs) um so like one ant that's fine a couple ants yeah no problem but once there's a large group of ants i i'm out uh burn the house down type of thing (laughs) like it's just I, i can't do large large quantities of ants. So films like this and films like ants, um, not the animated one, but the, uh, you know, the terrifying one I have not seen. So I probably won't be seeing this, but it sounds like it's a pretty entertaining piece of like 50s B-movie sci-fi made by a really great graphic designer in 74. Yeah, you if you don't want to watch the movie, you might, if nothing else, and I might look it up for you, you might look, if nothing else, at the uh, ant funeral because it is quite something. Yeah, I mean that does sound like something that uh, has probably never been done in another movie before. <laughs> I don't think so. No, maybe in the ants uh, animated one, there's the ant funeral. I don't remember. Gosh, that would be in the sequel. <laughs> Stallone and <laughs> Stallone and uh, Woody Allen. Yeah. Uh, okay, my number three is also an insect here, and this is uh, from 1993. It's a movie that I think would make a great double feature with my number four, which was Slugs. This is Ticks from 1993. Come get your bags, guys. This place looks worse than the projects. It started out small. It's got measles bumps. It's a tick. Vampires of the insect world. A part of Mother Nature's wonder. What's so inspiring about bugs and insects and snakes? But then they grew. Don't move. There's something on your back. Get it off now! And grew. Just don't touch it if you don't know what it is. Don't touch it, it attacked me. Unimaginable. Ticks do not get this big. Unthinkable. (laughs) Unbelievable. There's a huge fire and a whole bunch of those tick things hidden this way. Where civilization ends. This one is directed by Tony Randall, who did Defcon 4, Hellraiser 2, and I think he also did 3. And I know he did the absolutely insane 1995 film adaptation of the manga uh, Fist of the North Star, which is like just an absolutely bonkers movie. The mutated animal in question here is, of course, Ticks. These ones have been mutated by uh, Clint Howard, who's a drug dealer, <laughs> and 
He's using steroids to enhance his weed plants, and his waste runoff is the cause of their mutation. Um, the, the film itself is about a pack of campers. They're headed up to the woods for an inner city wilderness trip. Seth Green is one of our campers. And then uh, even more amusing is Alfonso Ribeiro, who plays Carlton in The Fresh Prince. <laughs> yes, yes. He's in the cast here, too. And uh, they run into these ticks. Now, these, like, just like uh, most mutated animal films, these ticks become grotesquely big in size. But they're not so big. They're they're not, like, bear-sized. They're just, they're kind of the size of softballs. And uh, they're really, really nasty looking. And they, uh, they'll they both bite your neck and then burrow under people's skin. Uh, I considered choosing the Jaws ripoff Piranha for my list. Right. But instead went with this film that feels like a piranha ripoff and i say that lovingly because really it feels like an early joe dante project it's pretty well made it never takes itself too seriously and at times it's it's genuinely funny it's uh got great practical tick effects and clint howard who plays the drug dealer named jarvis he like he gets startled in his uh lab and then he steps backwards into a bear trap that he set up on the floor. <laughs> and so he falls to the ground. And from the ceiling, a bunch of tick eggs fall on him. And his transformation is grotesque. Uh, his line of, I, I think his, he yells out like, I'm infested. <laughs> it's just an amazing line. Uh, very 90s movie, like I said, came out in 93. And it starts with Seth Green's 90s haircut and his oh, clothing boy. choice just on point. But the gore is the star of the show here. Vinegar Syndrome actually put this out in 4K. So if you want to see this in the best quality it's ever looked since it probably even better than when it played in theaters in 93 you have that option and uh it's got like three making of featurettes got two commentaries one by the director and uh, i think one by the special effects team and um my final selling point for ticks carlton from fresh prince tries to play a tough guy here and it is just something that does not work so (laughs) here you go supremely entertaining my number three ticks from 1993 and I have not seen Ticks, so this is one I've I've seen like the cover a million times, but I never actually watched it. So I might have to watch Ticks. That sounds sounds like I'm ready for that one now. <laughs> Ticks so. actually has a cover that reminds me a little bit of your uh, Bug cover from '75, like the the female on the front with the Ticks kind of like crawling in and she's screaming. Yeah, I I, I there was that period where Clint Howard seemed to be in every B movie. of all time and for a while there so i kind of just started glazing over and not watching any of those uh and i probably need to go back and check that one out that sounds good yeah it's a good time and like i said never look better than it does now excellent ticks okay here we go um this one unfortunately okay if there's any movie i think we might copy on or we might both meet on i think this might be the movie i i have a prediction um if I give you the tagline on this one, it's going to give it away, but that's fine because we're talking about it. So the tagline of this one is, get ready for the violence of the lambs. And that is 2006. Once again, you got to look at the right year to get the right movie. 2006 Black Sheep from New Zealand. Miles from civilization. I have a dream for the future. A secret experiment has given birth to a new breed. 
bloody animals. Oh, my lord! There's something wrong with the sheep. They attacked us. Oh, nonsense. Directed by Jonathan King. Uh, did I match you? Do you have this movie? I don't. I considered it. Oh, ah, Black Sheep. So good. <laughs> I think this movie is so is highly underrated. I'm surprised this movie isn't talked about a lot more because this is, to me, one of the most fun horror movies out of the, what is it, mid-thousands, 2006? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this movie is just ridiculous. I don't know how to get through the whole, the, whole, <laughs> the whole plot of this. But basically, it starts out with like the... the you know, before it flash forwards, whatever, 15 years or however many years it is, it starts out with uh, the two young boys and two brothers. And there's the mean brother and the nice brother. And the nice brother loves his sheep and they live on a sheep farm. And the mean brother kills his brother's sheep. Uh, and then their father dies shortly after that. So the the, the, the nice brother, uh, who is, I think, Henry, yeah, Henry, he uh, he's traumatized so much that uh, when we flash forward 15 years later, he's been going through... Uh, I forget what they call it. Something ridiculous like uh, uh, sheep aversion therapy. I don't know what it is. But basically, he's <laughs> he's learned to not be afraid of sheep anymore. And he's able to finally return to the family farm where his brother, uh, Angus, the, the terrible brother, now runs the, you know, runs the whole place and uh, wants to be in control. And he wants to make the perfect sheep. He wants to make the best sheep in the world and, and be rich and all this kind of stuff. And of course, his brother, Henry, returns and... Everything seems to be going pretty normally until a couple of animal rights activists break in to the farm and then break into their genetics facility on the farm, which, you know, all sheep farms have, I'm sure. Uh, and they run, <laughs> they run off with some uh, with uh, embryos, if I remember correctly. I think that's right. Uh, sheep embryos. Uh, sheep embryos, not like most sheep embryos in that they can come to life, attack you, bite you, and cause you to turn into a weir sheep <laughs> i guess you'd say <laughs> a zombie weir sheep yeah yeah this movie um i mean logically does it make a lot of sense no and uh, this is the one that kind of broke the rules a little bit because there's definitely some hybrid human sheep stuff in here but there's enough actual killer sheep in this movie too that it 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 works and i think it still fits in my criteria but the the reason to come for this movie and stay are the practical effects, which is done by uh, Weta Workshop, who did all of the, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings and all that kind of stuff. So they are like, this is like a low, low end, you know, B movie with high end practical effects. So you get tons of gore, tons of really cool, like, weird creature versions of sheep either sheep themselves that have just gone kind of maniacal and are and are attacking people which sounds ridiculous and it is but also is pretty awesome uh i think a couple standout scenes for me is there's one where our heroes are in a truck and they're in a truck careening towards a cliff as they're being attacked by a killer sheep and that that scene alone is uh, it's 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 almost tunes the cat in its ridiculousness yeah. <laughs> but i love it uh and then there's just a ton of gory scenes where uh, sheep and weird sheep are attacking various people in this movie uh it's it's tons of fun tons of weirdness um this is like right up the alley of of creature feature mad scientist it's both combined into one for me so um it's a movie they don't make anymore really at all um but I, I absolutely adore it. 
Yeah, I love this movie. It's really a straight up comedy. If you think about it, there's yeah. like tons of sheep puns in there. Uh, like, you know, dick and fart jokes. It, it is a really, really funny movie. And it does, like you said, uh, they're the team that worked on Peter Jackson films. It really does feel like early pre Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson done in New Zealand, really, really funny movie. And like you said, the, the gore effects are fantastic. Yeah. And, and every time a new one comes, you're just like, Oh wow, this is going to be great. Like when there's a, <laughs> there's like a whole bunch of rich people all having like a, they're all getting together, I think, to see like the, the prize sheep and stuff. And and then you see the sheep just come pouring over the hill and you're like, oh, no, this is going to be fantastic. And it is. <laughs> yep. Okay, that's uh, Black Sheep from 2006 at your number two. So I guess it probably appears we're not going to match up at all on our list, which is awesome. My number two goes a little bit more lighthearted here. How can you have a list about mutated animals and not include possibly the most famous of them all? 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. (laughs) (laughs) You're fair. That's right. Get ready, America. Company's coming. What the heck was that? Looked like sort of a big title in a trench coat. So get out the order. Watch your manners and get ready for the great green adventure. It's kind of like moonlighting. And I thought insurance salesmen were pushy. I love being a turtle! Doesn't everybody? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Rated PG. Now playing at theaters everywhere. In 1987, I was absolutely obsessed with three cartoons. G.I. Joe was one of them. Transformers was one of them. And of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I had seen like the animated G.I. Joe and Transformers movies and they kicked ass. They still kick ass. But uh, I'll never forget like seeing the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trailer come on TV for the first time. And I think it was the first time I was really, really excited to go see a movie in the theaters. Of course, uh, my parents took me and we were doing our ninja moves as we left the theater. <laughs> it, uh, it's based on the characters who I think everybody is familiar with at this point. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles first appeared in comics in 1984. The cartoon was really what catapulted them into a cultural phenomena. And they had like the toy line, the cartoon, and then you had like a Nintendo video game. And now you got this movie that kind of brings in elements of both the graphic novels and the cartoon. And uh, it follows our our four turtles on a quest to save their master Splinter with their new allies, April O'Neil, who's a reporter, and Casey Jones, who's like a Punisher-style vigilante from a, a maniacal guy named Shredder and his Foot Clan. Uh, look, when I, when I saw this at age nine, it delivered. And when I look back at the film now, it's... Kind of crazy that I wasn't terrified by the turtle designs. Right. The uncanny valleyness of them. <laughs> yeah, they are grotesque. Um, I saw this a few years ago because my nephew really likes the Ninja, the Ninja Turtles, which are still apparently like still out there, still going. And uh, it's, it's still really fun. And, and it just delivers everything you would expect from a film like this. You get fun fights. You get lighthearted one-liners. You get a crowd-pleasing ending. There's a scene in an apartment where uh, Michelangelo and one of the Foot Clan soldiers are having like a Wild West-style duel with nunchucks, and you mm-hmm. hear like the Sergio Leone, <laughs> like or Ennio Morricone's score kicking in. It's uh, it's just a really really fun movie. And in addition to the turtles, Elias Codier, who plays Casey Jones, is great as this. Uh, 
like attitude filled sports pun spouting ass kicker. The the film was a smash hit. I think we all know that now. But at the time of its release, it had the second biggest opening ever behind 1989's Batman. This thing made over $200 million worldwide on a $13.5 million budget, making it the biggest independent film ever made at the time. And it was number one or two at the box office for eight weeks in a row. Yeah. It was um, kind of a weird, like, uh, kind of a weird race with Pretty Woman because Pretty Woman came out the week before and was number one. And then Turtles came in the next week and took over number one and was number one for four weeks straight. And then Pretty Woman went back to number one and this was number two for four more weeks straight. So it was like just kind of neck and neck with Pretty Woman for, for, two months which is bizarre to me looking back at it now but um yeah teenage mutant ninja turtles i also like the second one i have not seen the new like michael bay produced ones i oh, don't boy. know how those hold up but uh <laughs> one and two either. yeah yeah one and two were a lot of fun and in two you get the vanilla ice song as well which is of just course. like icing on the cake for that one. Oh boy uh, <laughs> yeah look I, i'm on a on apologetically a fan of 1990s Ninja Turtles. And uh, I think it deserves to be at number two here for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. And I think I was thinking that that's like one of the ones where it got, they got the movie out at the right time. Like so many of those, so many of those kind of properties would come out just a little too late. Like just when it was just not quite the right time, but this one I think hit just perfect. Plus it got decent buzz even from like the actual, you know, like, established critics and stuff. I think Siskel and Ebert both thought it was pretty good. And I mean, it, it, it got enough good buzz that like everyone saw it. I remember going and seeing it. I was not as young as you. <laughs> I, should, I should not have been seeing it, but I remember going to seeing it and having a good time at it. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't at that age. See, for me, Star Wars was, had that effect, you know, where I came out of the theater, you know, swinging around the lightsabers, of course, you know, but uh, same idea. Uh, Roger Ebert did give it a pretty positive review and Many studios passed up distributing this movie because uh, they did not know how it was going to be because you mentioned it came out at the right time. Masters of the Universe, the He-Man movie, had come out and it was a huge flop. And so I think people were afraid of that. And I think New Line, if I'm not mistaken, New Line put it out or it was either New Line or Lionsgate that put it out and like just made a killing on it because everybody else passed up on it. Even like Disney passed up on it. Wow, Disney, Disney, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah, they don't need the money now, but yeah, <laughs> probably should, probably could have They kind of did back film. then, though. They kind of did. They weren't doing so hot back then. That was right before, I think, that, well, or maybe at the beginning of the uh, the, the renaissance for them, but eh, we're getting off topic now. Anyway, <laughs> number one. Back on topic. Number one, yeah, grand finale, Bruce Perky. What do you got at number one? This is probably my most expected and most generic version of all of mine, but I had to pick at least one classic monster movie. And when I say classic monster movie, I mean classic creature feature from the 50s, and that is 1954's them exclamation point by direction of the president of the united states stay in your homes i repeat stay in your homes your personal safety the safety of the entire city depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities yes cities nations even civilization itself threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history making violence nature mad rampant wrought its most awesome creation born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous. There is no word to describe them. 
So ants were your double up. <laughs> ants, ants. I would have done. I could have done five ant movies, but I didn't want to do a five ant movies. So I would have missed too many good movies. Um, but them is uh, now it's considered kind of a, a B sci-fi fifties classic. Um, I still love this movie. I think it, it it's a ton of fun. Uh, basic concept is I once again the desert. I think it starts out in New Mexico. Uh, I'm assuming you've seen this at some point in your life. Uh, I have. Yeah, I saw this on TV way back. Yep. Yeah. Which is how most people saw this movie, I think. I'm sure I did, too. Um, classic sci-fi. Uh, you've got uh, in the desert af- after the nuclear testing. You know, it's all nuclear nuclear stuff back in the 50s, pretty much, for almost every kind of mutant monster movie. And uh, after nuclear testing, uh, basic ants became giant ants and uh, started attacking everybody. And they have to find, the, I think there's a couple queens escape, if I remember the plot correctly, and it the best well there's several good parts in this one is you have these giant actual full-size ant kind of puppet things that they use uh which still i mean they look they look silly but they also look kind of great uh and even for this day you see them go like wow they had to build those giant ants that's pretty great and it has this really um really specific sound that they gave the ants which i think now is almost it's almost as iconic as the the theremin you know for like uh space stuff from the 50s we have that theremin sound well this is that kind of monster sound which when you hear it you know it you'll know what it is and uh if you don't know what it is watch the trailer for them and you'll see um i think originally they wanted this to be color they couldn't afford it they wanted it to be 3d but the studios didn't believe it would be you know a big enough hit uh but it ended up being a big hit this movie really blew up big uh has a very, very small uncredited first or second role by Leonard Nimoy, which is kind of a fun little thing in here. Edmund Gwynn is in this, uh, James Whitmore, James Arness in an early role who ended up being Gunsmoke. Um, the other things that are great in this movie, as opposed to just the normal 50s sci-fi stuff, which once again, I could watch night and day. In fact, I think I even mentioned to you, I, I watched every movie in the opening song from uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. And... Almost all those movies are these 50s sci-fi movies, so it's a lot of fun if you like that kind of stuff. Um, there's a scene towards the end, which is the final battle between the police, the very good police in the 50s. We all know how good they were. Um, <laughs> Outside of very, Los Angeles, right? Yeah, it's in Los Angeles, in the yeah. in the the sewers and the, uh, the, the aqueducts and stuff of Los Angeles, and they're fighting the giant ants there. And uh, if you're watching, you'll never see more than three giant ant models at once because that's all they had. They had to make them look like a lot more, but they had three. And uh, they fight them and they use flamethrowers and there's just a, a big giant battle. And it's, it's it's chef's kiss for those types of movies. I love it. Yeah, it's a great uh, cheesy B movie. And uh, you can see, I mean, you, you just mentioned the flamethrowers, clear influences perhaps on uh, John Carpenter and also possibly James Cameron for Aliens. I mean, they all loved movies from that era. That Between that and, well, I mean, obviously with Carpenter, you had The Thing as well. You know, he's yep. remaking The Thing, which does have fire in it. But I think the flamethrower aspect from them had to be pretty impactful. Because I think that was one of the big, I don't know, the big five maybe creature features from the 50s. It had to be right up there. Yeah, I think so. And James Whitmore is uh, great as the lead as well in this. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to I got to go back and rewatch this cuz like I said, I haven't seen it since gosh, I saw it on my dad's 27-inch tube TV way back in the day on like a Sunday morning. 
I don't think it's widescreen, so it probably doesn't matter too much, but I'm sure they've cleaned <laughs> up the picture. Yeah, I'm sure somebody's put it out on a, on a good Blu-ray by now. Um, my number one here is probably my most prestigious film on my list, and it is, in my opinion, one, it's probably one of the most entertaining films of the 2010s. This is Rise of the Planet of the Apes, directed by Rupert Wyatt. You've been invited here to make history. This drug could save millions of lives. When we test one subject, I want to make sure it's stable. Oh, he's a smart one, isn't he? You told him to sign? Just a handful of things. Caesar's skills far exceed that of a human. Something's aren't meant to be changed. That ship's company property. Keep your emotions out of it. We have a responsibility. We will proceed with or without you. You have no idea what you're dealing with. The mutated animal in this film is Caesar, a chimpanzee who has been genetically altered by a chemist who's trying to create a cure for Alzheimer's. It's really about Caesar's ramp of intelligence after these treatments and then him questioning his status as the chemist's pet and eventually his role in the organization and rebellion of other primates who are being experimented on. I was really surprised by how much I like this film. I did not love the original Planet of the Apes films. I did not like at all the Tim Burton movie from <laughs> right. what, 2000 or 99, whenever that came yeah. out. I, I really did not like that movie. And I went to go see this on the strength of early buzz, and I really love this movie. It's got a great cast. James Franco is the chemist who was who um, he replaced Tobey Maguire, who was originally in talks to be in this movie. Uh, Frida Pinto is in here. John Lithgow, Brian Cox. And of course, the all star in this movie is Andy Serkis, mm -hmm. who, in my opinion, should have gotten an acting nod at the Oscars. He didn't, obviously. And as it is, the film was only nominated for one, which was Best Visual Effects. And it lost to Hugo, which is blows my no. mind that this lost yeah, to Hugo. Yeah, no. That's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most entertaining films of the 10s. There's just fantastic action set pieces. The Golden Gate Bridge blockade is really cool to see, especially myself living so close to that bridge. Some moments of real heart, including one of the most electric moments in uh, talking animal history, I, I'd say, when Caesar yells no for the first time and, yep. and he like learns how to speak. He's got his voice. Special effects are all really great. Uh, Roger Ebert probably put it best. He says, one never knows exactly where the human ends and the effects begin, but Circus and or Caesar gives the best performance in the movie. I have to agree. I love this movie. Still holds up today. I don't think the sequels are as good, but they are still good. This one just uh, is over the top amazing. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, 2011. That's my number one. That's a really good call. That's a, it's a great movie. I didn't even think about the Planet of the Apes movies, but that totally makes sense, especially with the newer iteration where they definitely kind of lean into the the uh, manipulation genetically and all that stuff of there. I would say if you have you seen all of the old Planet of the Apes movies? No, I've only seen the first one. Okay, the only one I would suggest you might check out is the second one, which is Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which stars James Franciscus instead of Charlton Heston and has it's the most bonkers of all of them and it has a whole okay. bunch of a whole bunch of weird human stuff uh and it's much more of a weird human movie than it is an ape movie in fact it's barely planet of the apes movie at all 
Interesting. All right, I'll uh, I'll have to give that a shot. I think they're actually selling like a big box, a Planet of the Apes legacy box, and it has like all the Planet of the Apes films that have ever been made. Maybe one day I'll splurge and check it out. Beneath the Planet of the Apes is the weird one. It's the weird one, for sure. Uh, Bruce, did you have any honorable mentions? Any that you wanted to mention that just didn't make your list? I did. I had a few. I had one that almost made my list. The one that was came really close to making it in was Hell Comes to Frogtown. Um, <laughs> Roddy Piper. <laughs> yes. But it was just a little too goofy. And the first half of that movie isn't that great. Uh, but the Frogtown stuff is fantastic. So that almost made it. Um, uh, I almost mentioned Mant, but it's only a movie within a movie. Um, matinee from Joe Dante has the Mant fake movie inside of it. If you ever seen that. Um, and I thought a top five for you sometime might be great movies within movies. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, monkey shines, tarantula spider one. did not make it, uh, night of the lepus, which is the killer rabbit movie. Uh, the fly and the thing I left off because obviously we talked about not doing humans into animals. And the only other one I thought of was frogs. Oh, fr- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also left off the fly because it did not meet my requirements. I left off the thing. I, I probably could have used the dog from the thing, but I yeah. left it off just because uh, I've talked about things so much. Right. Um, and then I also left off man's best friend because I just had that on my top five dogs list. I yep. don't want to repeat that one. But three that uh, almost made my list but didn't, I had Deep Blue Sea from Mm -hmm. 99, the uh, shark movie that is imbued with intelligence. Um, Mimic, which is a... I think that's Cockroaches as well in Mimic. Yeah. I think that's a Del Toro movie, if I'm not It is a Del Toro movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, The Host from 2006 is a really fun South Korean movie that uh, I just love. Mm -hmm. It's very good. Um, all right, let's uh, before we get to our plugs here, let's run down our lists one more time. I had at number five the uh, film Uninvited from 1987. At number four, I had Slugs from 1988. At number three, I had Ticks from 1993. Number two, I had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990. And at number one, I had Rise of the Planet of the Apes from 2011. I had at number five, Bug from 1975. At number four, I had Prophecy from 1979. Killer, killer bear. At number three, (laughs) I had uh, Phase Four from 1974. At number two, I had Black Sheep, 2006. And at number one, I had Them, exclamation point, 1954. Killer list. Literally a killer list. And we <laughs> <Yes>. have, uh, <laughs> we now have more than 10 movies. If you look at our honorable mentions for you guys to check out mutated animal films, uh, Bruce Perky, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm going to have all kinds of stuff in the show notes where people can find more of your work, but, um, why don't you plug where people can find cinematics where they can chat with you and, uh, maybe anything that you guys have coming up in the future that people get excited for. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously we have the Cinematics uh, Weekly Show, which you can get on any podcast uh, place that you look for your podcast, or also there's YouTube. Uh, you can look at Deepest Dream, which is run by Greg. He uh, posts a ton of stuff, as well as all of our cinematics on YouTube under uh, Deepest Dream and also Cinematics. He's both on there. And then uh, the Cinematics Facebook group 
and I think you'll attest to this, is one of the best, if not one of the more healthy <laughs> groups on Facebook. <laughs> if you still delve into Facebook land, uh, it's a private group and it's pretty highly curated to keep you know rabble rousers out of there. And it's nonstop movie talk. I would say on the average day, you're going to at least see, I don't know, four or five movies you never heard of or you're interested in hearing about or you want to know more about. So I would say that's that's a great place to go. Yeah, I've talked about the the um, Facebook group a lot, but I've never talked about how the community is. And it is a really, really good community. There's nobody there that's causing trouble. It's literally just folks talking movies. And uh, yeah, I, I think if somebody got out of line, we'd all kind of keep people in check, keep them in check. Yep, we and we do. And we but we don't, you know, we don't hold people back. So for example, some Facebook groups are really like precious about like, you can't promote your stuff. No, that's not the way uh, that Facebook group, um, people promote their stuff all the time. And more the merrier, we want people to like, get out there and tell us what they're doing and give us their opinions as well. So yeah, good stuff. And again, I will link all this stuff in the show notes. Bruce Perky, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, had a blast with this, and hopefully we can get you and uh, <clears throat> Eric back on to do another uh, another draft here pretty soon. Yeah, just just think of me as your uh, I'm the I'm the understudy. So you know when uh, <laughs> when uh, when the the main stripper showgirl falls out, I will be just like in Showgirls. I'll be right on the side to come in and 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 make it work. Come in and splash about. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this show up here. Links to everything Force 5 and Bruce Perky are in the show notes. Links to listen, social media, all that stuff. I make it easy for you to support. Just go to the show notes. Speaking of support, executive producers on this episode include Peter Beta from the Middle Class Film Class podcast. Go check that out. We've got Musa Mahmood, Rupert Bumblestein, 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 one of those. Ryan Golan of the New World Pictures podcast, another great podcast. Go check that out. And Carlos Mota. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to be a producer on the show, again, head to patreon.com backslash force five. Can't spare five bucks a month? No problem. You can still support. Take two minutes to review the Force 5 podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can review it, please review it and tell your friends about the show. Those two very free, very simple things can help my show. They help my audience grow. They get me in the rankings. They, they just help out. So please do it for me. Theme song today comes courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe. Stay sane. I hope 2023 is amazing for you and go watch some mutated animal flicks.